it's it's kind of it's humbling traveling around with these guys because they're the they're better teachers than me and they can play instruments. And uh, <clears throat> somebody asked me one day, they said, "So what what are your gifts?" You know, my, my wife's playing drums and singing, and then I got you know each of the guys playing instruments taught a breakout session, you know, really at a seminary level. And I said, I can lift heavy stuff and motivate people. <laughs> and that's about it. And, and I'm hard to hurt. And so, um, so tonight, hopefully, thanks, thanks. Uh, hopefully, we'll be motivated by the Word of God, though. And I would say this about motivation. And I, and I warn you, I'm going to talk fast. And the students know what, that I talk fast because I usually have too much to say. Um, and, and because the Word of God, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys, when I get into the Word, I don't know, I can't stop. And um, that doesn't mean I'm long-winded. It just means in the wind that it does come out, there's more words than allotted wind, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so I'll say this about uh, as we look into the Word of God and we look for instruction from Scripture tonight, I want to talk about marriage and family. I want to talk about raising kids because my passion is students, student ministry. My first passion is my own kids, my own family, and, and, uh, and I now happen to own a middle schooler, and so that's been a learning curve. Um, and... Uh, you know, been preaching at them for two decades, and uh, so now that now it gets really, you know, uh, um, it's like sobering. Um, but as we respond to the Word of God, as, and especially as we as we look into what Scripture has to say about raising our kids, uh, I, I want to say this: in the Bible, we need to keep the perspective that, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and then it may not make sense to some of you. I'll quickly explain it. The indicatives always lead the imperatives, okay? Indicative is when, we're, when you're reading Scripture and you see action, if God is doing the action, that's an indicative. Simplest way I know to explain this, okay? If you're called to action, if I'm called to action, we're reading Scripture and we're called to action, that's an imperative, okay? And so we got to make sure that in our own lives as parents, as husbands, wives, grandparents, as good, good church folk who invest in the lives, especially of kids who maybe don't have families, that we get those two right. Your action never should lead God's action in your home, in your marriage, at church. My action should never be the final authority. It should never be the beginning authority. God is already at work Marriage and family are a picture of the Trinitarian existence of God, the Trinitarian Trinitarian glory of God, the Trinitarian fellowship of God. And so our families should be reflectors of that Trinitarian glory. So if we're going to raise kids God's way, if we're going to grow families in the nurture and the admonition and the discipline of the Lord, then the indicatives must lead the imperatives. God must always be at work in our families, in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages before we can be at work to honor him and reflect him. Because God always honors himself. He always brings glory to himself. Always. Always. I remember this was so sobering for me when I was late teens, maybe 20. My folks were splitting up. And my dad had been a, a pastor, Baptist pastor here in North Carolina for uh, 20 years. And, and he fell into moral sin and, and walked away from our family. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed and, and, and just devastated by this. And, and really realizing that to that point, my faith di- didn't have its own feet. You know, it's kind of, I was, I was just kind of doing and being, you know, Larry Holloway's son. And I remember bargaining with God, or, 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 or not bargaining with God, but almost demanding from God an explanation. How can this be? You know, this is, your name is ruined. You know, this community, a small mountain community, my family is generations and generations deep in that community. It's ruined. Our family name's ruined. Your name's ruined. How could you let this happen? And, and, and the Lord immediately spoke to me from Isaiah 48. I opened my Bible. I never, I, 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 at that point in my life, I was a, uh, not a Bible reader I don't even know if I was a Christian, you know, I, I, I called myself a Christian, but um, that was a joke. And so I opened my Bible up that night as if to say, all right, you know, show me something. God took me straight to Isaiah 40. I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I've only have it, had it happen a few times in my life where it's almost like the verse that he pulled out and stuck in my face was, was uh, you know, a ball bat to the head. And it was in Isaiah 48 where God says, I yield my glory to nobody. I don't yield my glory to anybody. 
Your dad didn't just rob me of my glory. And, but as parents, we need to understand, and as husbands and wives and as kids, we need to understand that we don't yield God of his glory, but God is glorified in one of two ways in our lives. Either as we reflect his nature by being testimonies to his grace, testimonies of the faith that he's given us, living out the spoken word, fleshing out the spoken word in our lives so that God works in and through us, so that the indicatives lead the imperatives. God is working, and as a result, we're working as he works through us, and he's glorified. Or he's glorified in our disobedience and rebellion when we do things on our own terms. He's still glorified because ultimately he's going to do what he needs to do. He's going to do what he needs to do to preserve his glory. And so we receive, God receives glory either through grace and mercy or through condemnation and wrath and justice being extended. And we need to be passionate about raising families that reflect the glory of God by loving God, being a testimony to his grace, and, and being a testimony to the Trinitarian nature of God. God exists, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that when wives submit to their husbands, they understand that that submission is a reflection of Christ, who is equal to the Father, yet submissive to the Father. That when husbands love their wives and, and don't, don't love them harshly, but encourage and lead and serve them, that Christ first loved and led and served the church. And we understand these things. God doing the work, God doing the action, and then us responding to that. So we need to raise families that reflect that. We need to raise families that reflect that. And this is something that I'm passionate about because, like I said earlier, I'm two decades now of student ministry. There's only like one person in student ministry older than me, and he's your youth pastor. I mean, how old are you? Man, I can't imagine what the mid-40s looks like. I mean, I'm just breaking into the fours, you know. But, 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 there, but and, and let me, I want to insert this too. I want to say this. Y'all need to know how rare that right there is. Most guys bail by, by the big 3-0. They're like, I am out of here, man. This is, and, and it's usually not because of students. It's usually because of moms and dads. And, you know, they're like, I can't take it. I'm going to implode. And so God has blessed this church with, with both Kevins. I mean, you're talking about a long tenure. I know you guys know this, but let me just say, someone who we, we partner with probably five or 600 churches a year, either those churches coming to our facility or us being in, in events like this, I'm telling you, it is like, it is as rare as a dinosaur egg, what you got here. And he's as old as a dinosaur, so it works out great. Um, uh, and, you, you know, just what these guys endure, uh, you know, to, it, it's, it's amazing to me um, to see how, uh, you know, I'm, I'm past the cool years, you know. Uh, and and I'm, I'm far beyond ever thinking now, I'm, I'm I'll never be cool again to students, you know? It's, it's bigger than that now, and, and that's a neat hump to get over, and you get to a point where there's an urgency where we, we've got to raise them and instruct them and, and, and teach them what God would have us to teach them. So Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, I want to speak hopefully and prayerfully tonight to, uh, to the, the topic, and I hate to use the word topic because I just want to exposit this one verse, um, but to the message of uh, what our instruction for our families, for our marriages, and and. Hopefully you guys are familiar with Ephesians 5, the second half, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, where husbands and wives are addressed, a lot of the aspects of marriage. And uh, let me say this, prior to the fall, prior to the fall, husband and wife were naked and unashamed. After the fall, there was shame. What the new covenant brings to us, what Christ's relationship to the church brings to us and then what marriage should reflect for us is the removal of that shame replaced by grace. So grace extended to the spouse, grace extended to your husband, grace extended to your wife, and, and that our children should be raised to see that. And that removes that shame that sin brought in. Okay, so he lays out for us what the marriage, what the family should look like. We get down to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, let me say this to students. I know, and let me define students. If your mama and daddy are paying for anything in your life, you're a kid. Okay? 
Oh, I'm an adult. I put gas in my own car. Oh, well, you should run for president or do something like go to the moon because you're definitely, you know, way more qualified than the rest of us to be an adult. You know, if your parents buy your groceries or pay for your insurance or do anything mechanically to your car for you, you, in Scripture, you fit in the category of a child. Okay, I'm not being, not being ugly, facetious, sarcastic. We got categories, moms, dads, children, okay? Husbands, wives, children, all right? Men, women, children, okay? If, if your college, if your postgraduate tuition is being paid by your parents, you fit into the child category, okay? Not being silly, just reality, all right? Parents, you agree? Yes, you do, because your wallet feels it, okay? Now, that being said, I know, that there are 11-year-olds to 21-year-olds in this room that know so much more than your parents. You, you are so much smarter than your mom and dad. I know, I know you know that. Now I'm being sarcastic. Now I'm being, okay. So, so scripture gives you some clear instruction here. Honor your parents, obey your parents. Obey your parents. If they're not telling you something, listen, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you, uh, when you get to disobey your parents, you still don't get to dishonor them. But I'll tell you when you can disobey them. When they instruct you to do something that is contradictory to what Christ has called you to do. But you still honor them. You don't do it in an ugly way. You don't do it in a disrespectful way. And probably, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of you will not be faced with that decision. Okay? Obey your parents. Honor your parents. God expects it from you. Okay? Then he says this, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want to park right there. I want to say this, again, as a reminder. God examples fatherhood for us. God the Father is the supreme example of fatherhood. Moms, right here, what we're going to do is plug you right into that category, understanding that go through Ephesians chapter 5, where kind of the structure of the family is laid out, we're going to assume that mom and dad or mom and stepdad are going to be unified in this, okay? So we're speaking to dads, but we're speaking to parents, okay? And, and understand that God is the supreme example of fatherhood, as Christ is the supreme example of what a husband is, okay? Understand that if that's the case, then the indicatives are already leading. If I'm to be a dad who reflects the nature of God the Father, then I need to understand God the Father already reflects that nature. And so what I'm doing is I'm submitting to that. Okay, I'm submitting to that. I'm going to be a dad who reflects God the Father. Okay? Do I need to quit moving around? Would that help, you think? We good? Okay. I'll, I'll try to. The, the kids that have been to camp are like, oh, he's going to quit moving around. We'll see how that works. <laughs> Nearly beloved. We are gathered. Um, okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to jump out of the text for a minute. I'm a practical guy. I, I like practical. I like application. I like examples. I'm going to show me how to do it or, or get me pointed in the right direction and then leave me alone, and, and we'll, we'll make it happen, okay? So what I want to do is I want to look, oddly enough, maybe this may seem like a stretch for some of us, I want to jump back into the story of David's mighty men. And I want to look at some principles that I think we can learn from the way David led. Because David, apart from Christ, is, is kind of pointed to as the example of what a shepherd should be. Okay, so where I'm going with this, why, why, we, why we'll go there is because what we're talking about is fathers and mothers shepherding their children. Some of you may have read, I think it's Tripp's book, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Okay, so the idea that we are shepherds and we've been given the instruction of shepherding. Okay, so we'll look at what David did in the way that he led his men. So I want to learn from this. So if you would, uh, and, and then we'll look at, we're going to look at four David's mighty men, then we're going to jump right back to Ephesians 6, 4, and look at what that discipline and instruction, nurture, and admonition of the Lord is, okay? And we'll do about a dozen practical, just boom, bullet points of what, how we can reflect God in the way that we raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, okay? So turn, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel in chapter 23, 2 Samuel chapter 23, all right? Now, the reason this is hot on my mind right now is because my son and I are studying through the mighty men. And uh, if you're a dad, I encourage that. 
Um, you want to give your son examples of men of faith who are not uh, emasculated, I guess would be the word. That men of faith that, you know, not like, I remember watching an episode of uh, Bonanza where the parson, you know, the one Christian guy who was like a professional at following Jesus, uh, when, 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 you know, the, the town was being raised by, you know, the Indians or whatever, he was locked up in the church with the women and kids, okay? And so we want to show our sons that godly men need to be men of courage. They need to be men of compassion and sensitivity, but they need to be men of courage. So we're going through the, the, the mighty men of David. And so I want to I look at four of these guys, okay? And the, the first one comes in verse 8, 2 Samuel 23, 8. All right, I know, I know this seems like, why are we jumping over to 2 Samuel? All right, so if I could just, if you would humor me, uh, not humor me, that's not the right word, but just bear with me, okay? Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men of uh, whom David had. Josheb Bashebeth, that dude wasn't from Midland, was he? Some of y'all were in Spencer's breakout, we were talking about Midland, Georgia, and I was like, they're Midland right down the road, I know this, my cousins live there, okay? So, um, so but he wasn't from there. Uh, Atakamenamite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. So this man kills 800 men at one time. And Jesus instructs us in John 15 that the world will hate us. And one of the things that we need to do in raising our children in the nurture and the admonition and the discipline and instruction of the Lord is help them to understand that this world is not their home. And because this world is not their home, their home and their identity is found in Christ, that alone will alienate them from the world. Now, we don't need to do things to further alienate ourselves. If you remember Christ in his high priestly prayer in John 17 said, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you keep them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. Okay, so our job, our task, according to David in Psalm 127, is to raise kids up who are like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior, and an arrow is only effective as it is launched at the enemy. Okay, so as we're raising kids in culture, what we're doing is we're understanding our responsibility to raise salt and light, to be salt and light, to levy the culture, to go into the culture and to impact the culture for the gospel. Okay, so this guy goes out and fights 800 men, and you need to understand this, the odds are absolutely stacked against you as a Christian family, as a Christian family. And you know this, and you feel sure of it. Feeling like we've got to do something to perform in such a way that we can be accepted. And it's interesting how at age 30 and 40 and 50, we find ourselves dealing with the same things our kids are dealing with, which is peer pressure, culturally, to conform to certain ideologies or certain images. Okay? world's against you. The world hates the fact that you would raise your sons and daughters in the discipline and instruction and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why is that? John 15, Jesus says the world hates you because they're going to hate you because they hate me. Because they hate me. Because they hate him. Because the moment that you identify yourself with Christ Jesus, let me tell you something. I don't care how culturally cool you dress, how good you fit in, how much of the lingo you speak. On your most culturally relevant day, the world will reject you if you align yourself with Christ. The faith of our families the faith of our sons and daughters can never be about the numbers. If every man be found a liar, God will still be found true. And we need to understand that. So we raise our kids built and based and ingrained in them the conviction of the truth of the word of God. And we don't negotiate that. We don't, who fights 800 people? Not this guy. And any dad, any mom who thinks they're going to raise their kids in the nurture and the admonition and instruction of the Lord in 2012, 13, and 14 in the United States of America. Th those are the odds. 800 to 1, that's probably about right. That's probably about right. We don't, we, don't, we don't pay attention to polls. We don't listen to numbers. We are obedient to the word of God. Continuing, verse 9, next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Sorry, I know. Okay, just address it. You know, just... Put the awkward situation out there. Okay. Son of Ahohai, 
He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So this man stays with David. Here's the picture. Everyone falls back, but David stands his ground, and this man stands his ground with David. Stands his ground with David. Couple of, couple, three applications from this guy. One, dads, moms, find noble people that you can learn from and emulate. Find older folks in the faith, people that have faithfully and successfully raised godly families and learn from them. This guy's learning from David. He's been with David. He knows the legend of David and Goliath, and he stands his ground with David because he knows that the Lord's anointing is on David. But then also, we need to transfer that same mindset to our kids so that our sons and daughters would understand that the Lord's anointing is on us. The Lord's anointing is on us. When we raise our kids God's way, his anointing rests on us, okay? Though it's an 800 to 1 ratio, though the world stands against us, we want the anointing of God. We don't want the statistics to be tilted in our favor. We just want God's anointing, okay? So be a David in that sense. Let's be Davids in that sense. So our sons and daughters will stand beside us and desire to emulate us. They'll desire to emulate us. His hand clings to the sword. He holds so tightly to the sword that his fingers have to be pried off of it. What does the Word of God say? Ephesians chapter 6. What is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us in Hebrews chapter 4? That the Word of God is a double-edged sword. And, and then in Revelation 19, what goes out of the mouth of Jesus? The sword. What is that? The Word of Christ. Okay. So the Word of God is a sword. Really powerful word picture. Cling to the sword of the word of God as you raise your family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Cling to the sword. Learn from godly men and women and then be godly men and women for those that you lead. Verse 10. 11. Sorry. Verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herodite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi there, uh, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. So here's this guy, Shema, and he's fighting over lentils. Now, for us, where we live, I think pinto beans, okay? That's what, when I was growing up, we ate pintos once a week, at least. On a, that was on a down week. And a lot of times you ate them, you know, Tuesday night and heated them up <laughs> Wednesday night and maybe Thursday night, okay? Um, so, so here's a guy who fights statistically, it doesn't give us a number here. I think maybe it does over in, in the Chronicles account. But this man fights over, listen, this is where, you know the old saying, it don't mount to a hill of beans? <laughs> don't tell this guy that. Okay. He fights, oh, listen, what, what does he tell us? Little things are not little things when they're vital to the survival of your people. Little things are big things. He's fighting over beans, why? Because his people gotta eat. They gotta eat have to eat. Little things are big things when they relate to the survival. Listen, dads, it's your job to teach modesty to your daughters. It's your job to understand what's on your son's laptop or his iPhone. It's your task to teach sexuality to your children. It's your task because those are not little things, but somehow society has diminished them. And in the world's eyes, they're little things. They're not little things. They're things that by and large shape and determine the way our kids will view God. One of the honors of my life has been to teach these things to my kids. And i got a long ways to go. Let me insert this. Make sure that you understand. When a pastor stands and preaches, he does so on the authority of Scripture, never based on his own authority. And I'll be the first to confess to you this is wearing me out personally right now. I'm studying this, preparing this. It's killing me because it exposes failure and shortcomings, okay? That's why Paul says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they took the word of God and measured Paul's words to make sure, okay, is he speaking from his own authority or from the authority of Scripture, okay? So word of God, and, and, and so we have to respond to it. We have to be mastered by it. I think one of the most important things that we can do when it comes to the little things 
and we'll get to this in a minute when we go through those bullet points, is understand that the time we spend with our sons and daughters matters infinitely more, exponentially more than the inconvenience it might cause you at the end of a day where you're exhausted. In fact, it should not be an inconvenience. You don't have sons and daughters. You're past that stage. There are people here that need you to invest in their lives. They need you. I yelled at a kid uh, at the local high school football game in our town last weekend, two weeks ago. I know his situation. I know his dad bailed on him. I know he's being raised by his mom with a couple of sisters. And he's just trying to find manhood. And he's, he's one step in the direction of doing it wrong. And I just went down there on the sideline, and he's walking off the field, and I'm just screaming at him. He had a really nice hit. And if you're a um, football fan, you know what I mean. You know, I was, ex- I was, I was genuinely excited. But I thought I'm going to go down and encourage him. He's walking off the field, and I just said, you're a crazy animal. I'm screaming at him. You're a wild man. That's what I'm talking about. I'm just pumping him up. I'm done. I go back to my seat. He, it startles him. He looks at me. You know, if you're a player, you don't look at the stands. You're not supposed to. He's, Huh? Hey, hey, bro. Yeah. So then I get texts from him every day the next week. Hey, man, just wanted to remind you about the game Friday night. Friday night, he knows I got to preach this last Friday night. He knows I'm not going to be there. I'm, I'm going to be preaching. So he texts me. Hey, I know you can't make it. I know you got to preach tonight, but I want you to know that the game will be on 102.7. And if you get a chance to listen to some of it, that'd be awesome. I talked to his mom a couple days after that. She said, all he talked about all week was the one comment you made. Y'all, I just said it in passing. But what you're going to find is that little things are big things. Little things are big things. And what the world would diminish, the Holy Spirit of God would not diminish. And so we need to do the little things. Fight over the beans. Fight over the beans. And way over in verse 20, Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzil, doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. So he goes into the pit and he kills the lion. So what's the application? Well, I think it's twofold. One, uh, we've been instructed, I believe, in Scripture as parents, to create, and, and maybe not expressly instructed, but when we see the, the, the instruction of the Lord throughout the Word of God, one of the things that I think God has called us to do is, as parents and families and homes is to build an Eden-like existence for our family, okay? So Garden of Eden, God had fellowship. He walked with Adam and Eve. He, he communed with them in the cool of the day. There was an open relationship where they experienced freedom, like we've not experienced since, in, in, in one sense. And as parents, we are called to create that type of an environment and atmosphere so that our kids would have our ear and they would have our respect and they would have our love, not just that we would meet their physical needs, but that we would create an environment that is Eden-like, where there's a, an overwhelming degree of freedom for them to enjoy the things God's given them, specifically the spiritual things God's given them to enjoy the word of God, to enjoy personal worship, to enjoy the pursuit of holiness, and to do so in family community and fellowship. So Benaiah goes in, so what what do we learn from Benaiah? Well, there's a lion, and the lion's posing a threat. And Benaiah says, well, what what we could do, there's a couple things, We we could get in the house and lock the doors and watch for the lion. But he realizes that that would be allowing the enemy to imprison him. And so what he does is he expands the borders that are safe borders for the people that he leads. So he goes to where the lion lives. He pursues the enemy into the pit, and he kills the enemy so that it no longer poses a threat, so they don't have to lock themselves in their room, but so that they can enjoy freedom. As husbands and fathers and mothers and wives, our task, our job is to create an Eden for our kids to enjoy fellowship, with God, with us, with one another, and protect them from the world. People say, you want to raise your kids in a bubble? I do, but I just want it to be a really big bubble. Yeah, it's my job to raise them in a bubble. I just want it to be a big bubble. I don't want it to be a bubble of legalism or fundamentalism. I want it to be a big bubble where they experience Christ, and they love God, and where they know that I 
fight for them like a madman on my face before the throne of God daily, laboring for their salvation, laboring for their sanctification in prayer, serving them while leading them and not confusing the two, but understanding that they're harmonized, that I'm not a dictator, but a shepherd who meets the needs of the sheep, but who is definitively not a sheep. I'm not a sheep. I'm a shepherd, but I should smell like sheep, and I should be familiar with my sheep, and I should know their needs, and I should know how they're bent. Is it not God who knows our frame? He knows your frame. He knows my frame. He knows how we're bent, and he knows what he needs to do to bend us into the shape and the form of the cross so that we could be conformed to the image of Christ. We need to do that as shepherds. We need to expand the bubble and the borders We need to fight for the little things within our families. We need to serve one another, and this requires courage and compassion. Bullet points, practical application. So there there are certain things that I believe that we can do culturally, and I hope that the last couple minutes here, last few minutes here, will give you practical application, things that we're really trying to implement in our home that we've not mastered for sure yet. Um, but that we're striving towards, and I would like to share those with you. I've got about 63 of them, but tonight I'm going to give you like 13, okay? Some of you are like, whew, okay. That'd be, that would be another conference, uh, another month-long conference. Um, number one, love the Lord, love his word, and worship together. Your home, your Eden should be a place where God is worshiped, where Yahweh is exalted, where Christ is adored and exalted as king and Lord and provider and defender. Where, where food is seen as a gift from God. Where a warm bed is recognized as provision from God and where he is thanked and worshipped because of that. For us, we get around at night and we worship together. We, we read the Bible together. We talk about it. We share stories. Storytelling is huge for us. We share stories. Share stories. Somebody, everybody's got to tell a story from the day. I don't know what happened. Well, think of something. Something happened. It's funny. It's funny how, you know, sometimes you got to steer and lead the conversation. My son, in defending his older sister not long ago at camp, some boys threw a rock and hit, missed my daughter, but hit her best friend there standing there. So my son, who's now 10 but was 9 at the time, marches up the hill, okay? I've taught him, I said, son, remember the guy that, the 800 guys? He didn't worry about size or numbers, okay? Somebody messes with your sister worry about size or numbers, okay? I'll get you out of jail or come to the hospital or whatever, okay? <laughs> but we'll work it out. So he marches up there, and someone relays this to me later. This is maybe the next day or later that night. Somebody says, Tuck marched right up there. He squared up with those guys. He said, who threw a rock at my sister? You know, these guys are like, you know, middle school, you know, probably, probably seventh, eighth graders, and they just kind of like, who is this kid? And I think finally just, you know, they're like, to deal with the inconvenience, they went and apologized. Definitely weren't scared of him. There's four of them, and here's this little nine-year-old. So I get home that night. I want to I want to encourage that and, and, and tell him you did a good job. Anything happen today, Tuck? Mm. Uh, have football practice. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, anything after football practice? Uh, came to camp and we shot basketball. Okay, that's good. Anything just like, you know, out of the ordinary, crazy. Oh, yeah. I threw the cat off the porch. I was like, great, let's go with that story. Tell me about it. (laughs) Tell stories, share experiences, but do so, provide that worship setting. This may mean that we peel away from the television set or, listen, I'm not against TV. I love watching football and you know, if you're a Christian, you should have Netflix, I think. And I'm just kidding. That's, that's a bad joke. But, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not, I'm not like a, we just bought a TV. It was awesome. First time we've ever done that. It was fantastic. We got it on the wall there. We don't have satellite or cable. So, so far we're just staring at it, but it's awesome. <laughs> Once we figure out how to hook the thing up with the internet, we're going to be, we're going to be in business. But, but nothing matters more than that time. Okay. So, 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 as we lead in worship, we should love the Lord and we should love the word. We should love the word. As we love the word, they'll love the word. As we love God's standard, they'll love God's standard. 
which is the next point, and that is we should teach them and reflect for them an example for them what it is to love God's standard, to love God's purpose, to love God's will, and not just force them to conform to it. Teach them to love it. Teach them to love it. How? Love it. God made it work this way. They're going to love what you're going to love. And some of you, listen, let me say this. If you're going, it's too late for me. I blew it. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. I promise. God is always faithful to his word. And some of you are already dealing with the regret of mistakes made in raising your own kids. And I would say to you this. David carried the head of Goliath home. That was a weight that was bloody and inconvenient that reminded him of battle. But it was also the fragrance of victory. Carry your past sin as a bloody reminder of the victory that God has given you and promised for you. And don't hold to it. Don't stake yourself to the corpse laying on the battlefield. But understand, God has given you freedom. And if you'll pursue obedience to his word, he'll honor these things. Love the Lord. Love his word. And your kids will follow. Well, my son's 20 and my daughter's 24. Love the Lord and love his word and watch God honor that. And settle in for a two, three, four decade long fight. Because it may take that long. In understanding that, as we teach them to love God's standards, as we create an Eden-like existence, what we need to do is create an Eden and a garden that reflects the one that God created to begin with, which is a garden of yes, not no. A yes garden, not a no garden. Don't focus on the don'ts, focus on the do's. Don't focus on the no's, focus on the yes. God says to Adam, here it is, enjoy. Oh, this tree, stay away. Don't eat this one. Really? Everything else is mine? Everything else is yours. But we reverse that, don't we? It's, it's kind of a reflection of the sin nature. We expect the worst. We expect the worst. And so we create a garden of no's. And there's a yes here and a yes over there and a yes over here. And if we're not careful, what we do is we put the yeses in the wrong place and the no's in the wrong place. And we focus on things that really don't matter. And I think that one of the things that we need to learn and understand is that in the formative years, when I, and there may be somebody here, probably not many of you, maybe someone here with small children, and I would say that that is the season for breaking their will while nourishing their spirit. We don't break their spirit, we don't crush their spirit, that which the Lord will work and move in to regenerate them, but because their will is driven by their sinful nature. David says in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin and iniquity my mother brought me forth. And if you want to see sin as far as the sin nature is concerned in its rawest form, a toddler will example that for you, won't they? they? They would kill each other with no conscience. Throw one Oreo in the middle of the room and a butcher knife and turn eight toddlers loose. There will be blood, limbs, eyeballs gouged, no conscience. Why? Because it's self-preservation, isn't it? Self-preservation. So that's the season of their life where we need to enforce and, 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 and break their will and, and be consistent. And don't think it's cute when two and three and four-year-old kids sin. Don't smile at that. You're to reflect God. You're to reflect the Father in the way that you do that. So that later you can teach and lead. And at the time, if we do that faithfully, when the time comes for us to be handing over responsibility and coaching and counseling them, then we'll be able to do that. So you can't rein it in with a 16 or 17-year-old. When you smile at their sin as if it were cute when they're 3 and 4 and 5, and then you realize the monster you've created when they're 13, 14, and 15, it's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult. So let's shape and form them as God shapes and forms us. But let's do so with a garden full of yeses, not with a legalistic system, a legalistic environment, but a garden full of yeses. This is so important. It's so important and it's so significant. I think uh, we need to understand that we don't love them based on performance, and they need to know that, and they need to feel that. You need to feel that. Your kid needs to know that you're not vicariously living out your has-been athletic career through their Little League baseball performance. You know? You need to know that. They need to strive to do good and reflect God and honor the Lord in everything that they do, but they need to know that their value doesn't hang on Little League sports or who they take to the prom. We need to nourish and encourage and grow them. 
We need to give them a love for Scripture, not a love for legalism. A love for Scripture, not a love for legalism. In fact, they'll not love legalism. What is legalism? It's not about the rules. I heard one pastor say it this way. Teach them to love the Torah, not the Talmud. What is the Torah? The Old Testament law. What is the Talmud? Those thousands of extra biblical laws that man wrote and tried to impose. When God had said in Deuteronomy 6, teach them the word. Write my laws on their hearts. Write them on their heads. Write them on the doorposts of your house. And to a thousand generations, I'll honor that. And they went, oh, okay, well, if that's good, we should write 10,000 more laws and throw them on our kids. No, just teach them to love what God's put in place, the Word of God. Teach them to love the Word of God. How? By building a home that rests and is balanced and centered around the Word of God. That's how. Your kids should have your ear and your respect. should have your ear and your respect. And as a result, they should get not only quality time from you, but quantity of time. They should have your ear. They should have your respect. They should know. They can talk to you. They can come to you. They can speak to you. They should know that you're going to give them what they need. Dad, I need to talk to you. Not right now. I'm watching Bill O'Reilly. Really? Really? Not right now. Carolina's playing Duke. Because you know, inevitably, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, crisis is going to hit at the least convenient time for you. Oh, seriously? I just sat down with a big bowl of ice cream right here on the couch. I'm exhausted. Two 16-hour days straight, and the Carolina game's on. Do we have to talk about this right now? Yeah, give them, give them quality and quantity. Let them know that the most important part of your day is the time spent in the Word with the Lord, and then next to that is the time spent with Him. Quality and quantity. And let them know that they've got your ear and that you respect them. That you respect them. Have courage and compassion in discipline. Have courage and compassion in discipline. In other words, discipline like God. How does God discipline? Number one, he, we understand that the way God disciplines, discipline is not retaliation. We have to discipline. We have to chasten our children. The Lord says in Hebrews, what father who loves his son does not chasten him? But if he doesn't chasten that child, then that child is not a son of that father. It requires courage with compassion. Discipline for the sake of restored fellowship and reconciliation, not for retaliation and revenge. I don't just lash out and discipline back to punish my kid so that I get revenge or so that I can retaliate against something that they've done. I do so to shape them and shepherd them and drive them more towards the image of God. Number two, the way God disciplines Understand that, God's, understand that discipline is a gift to that child, though I would say he or she doesn't realize it right now. You know, as you're administering discipline, you know, giving a spanking to that child or, you know, t- putting that teenager on restriction for a week, they're not going, oh, gee, thanks, Dad, this is great. What a good present. This is better than Christmas. <laughs> but they will. How many of you, maybe, some of you, know, I would say a lot of us can look back and go, I can look back and thank the Lord for a couple of times I got my hind end whooped. You know, or a couple of times I had really good privileges revoked. And I realized, yeah, the Lord was using my father to shape me in those times. They'll thank you later. In disciplining my child, I must reflect the just nature of God. I must not jump irrationally to conclusions. Don't jump to conclusions. The justice for us, when our kids were small, this meant when I was angry over something they'd done, I sent them to their room. We had a chair in each of their rooms. They could sit in that chair. I'd go take a 10-minute walk, pray, spend time with the Lord, get focused. How am I going to reflect the justice of God in the way that I do this? That matters. Number four, the pain of discipline should be acute but not chronic. Acute but not dull and lasting. Swift. Had a guy ask me uh, once, are you saying that you shouldn't uh, use restriction and grounding? No, I'm saying that it should be acute when you do that, where the child should understand it is the broken fellowship that stings and the fact that there has to be repercussions. That stings. That's acute. Not the chronic dulling thud and ache of pain where the dad or mom drags that broken fellowship out over the course of days or weeks. I'm going to ground you, and I'm not going to talk to you or show you love over the course of this week. But where whatever restriction that child is placed on is followed aggressively with an investment into that child's life and into the relationship. 
That's important. One of the things I think that matters is not revisiting sin. A child is disciplined, and we discipline him today. Then tomorrow, if he does the same thing, we don't revisit yesterday's sin. If Christ put our sin under the blood, what would it look like for him to drag that bloody sin, that bloody heart out, and stick it in our face every time we fail? He doesn't do that to us. Neither should we do that to our kids. But we should, however, next point, be consistent so that they begin to see the pattern that says there's consistency in the way my father and my mother discipline. There's consistency, and that reflects the consistent nature of God. Father and mother must, father and mother must be united in discipline. They must be united. Don't let those kids yo-yo you against each other. Some of y'all, some of y'all are that family where mom and dad are good cop, bad cop. Which, it, let me say, there can be a way you do that that's good. But if your child knows, if I go to mom, she'll say yes. If I go to dad, he'll say no and they work you against each other, you're damaging that Trinitarian reflection of God because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united and unified in all function. Okay, So we need to reflect that as parents. Don't, and bottom line, don't let a 9-year-old or a 14-year-old work you over. Come on, you're smarter than that. You know, I mean, work together, be united. Dad, take the lead, serve, lead, Mom, trust the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your husband and be united in that. And the last thought I would add on discipline is to realize that discipline is part of the preparation as you prepare your kids for adulthood. As you prepare them for adulthood. Last thought is this. I'll give you, uh, here's what I'll do. End with a thought, la- the last kind of bullet point, and then give you an example or give you one story. Okay, last one is this. Your family... Wives, your husbands. Husbands, your wives. Parents, your children have no greater need from you than your personal holiness. Your sons and daughters, your grandsons and granddaughters, your stepsons and stepdaughters, they don't need anything from you more than they need for you to pursue holiness, for you to pursue Christ. That's what matters most to them, whether they realize it or not. Whether they realize it or not. David, after committing murder and adultery, said, it's you and you only have I sinned. When we don't pursue holiness, when we don't conform to holiness, when we don't submit and surrender our will to Christ daily, the repercussions will affect others. And it is the greatest need that they have from us. As we pursue holiness, we will lead them. We will lead them. And as we worship Christ, we will realize the truth of Psalm 115 where David says, we become like what we worship. And as our kids see that transformation This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. How are you transformed? How does the renewing of your mind take place? By worshiping Christ, the risen Savior, we become like what we worship. What is God's highest calling and purpose for all of us? That we be conformed to the image of his Son. And as we are conformed to Christ, and as we become like that which we worship, our children will see that, and they need that. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of the Father, into the image of the Son. Our kids need to see that. And as we lead that way, and they see that, they will follow. And as they follow us, what they will see is that we follow Christ. And so then, when we are taken out of the picture, they're following Christ. They're following Christ. They just need you to lead them. I'll close with a sobering story, sobering for me. When my oldest was, I don't know, probably six year, five, six years old, she said, Daddy, you wake me up in the morning when you uh, get up to study the Bible. And we do family devotions at night. I said, sure, yeah, and get up. I said, you know, you can't read. That's okay. I just want to sit and pretend I'm studying the Bible. All right. Okay, that's cool. And I said, at the end of my quiet time, I'll get you up and then we'll read together. How about that? Okay, that's cool. So get her up. Well, I thought this will last one or two days. Okay. And then I would go wake her up, and I would think she's going to roll over and say, uh-uh. So she's six, and then she's seven, and it's like every morning. And then she's, she, it's to the point where she's setting her on alarm, and so we get up. And she's not in here. That's what I'm talking about her. But, um, so she, she would uh, get up, and we would study. Uh, you know, I, I would have had my quiet time. She'd come in. We'd have a cup of coffee and study together. And then it got to the point where one day a week we go out for breakfast early, spend that time together. It's a sweet time for us and, uh, and a good time. And... So one morning after a long week of ministry and camp and five or six two-hour nights in a row of, you know, just no sleep, 
she comes and I didn't realize that I'd set a, an appointment with her, a, a breakfast date, and she pulls my foot at 6.30. I think I got in bed at 4 that morning. She says, Daddy, you going to sleep all day? <laughs> well, I, it crossed my mind. Is it, uh, is it the same thing to sleep if you're unconscious and don't have any say-so over it, you know? But, I, but, but here's, what, here's the reality that dawned on me. In that moment, I realized that I will not always lead well, but if I lead well most of the time, and if I'm consistent most of the time, God will honor that enough that when I dive, those I lead will push. And I refuse, listen to me, I refuse to be led by little girls and little boys. But I am perfectly fine at times to be pushed by them. And if we do our job, God will bless in such a way that our family pushes and drives. And that calls us to leadership. That demands that we lead like Christ. That demands that we have those hard that demands that we teach sexuality and gender roles and what a husband is and what a wife is and who God is and what Christ desires and what a holiness looks like and a high value on the word of God and a foundation of doctrine and theology, soundness that for the rest of their lives they can build on. Because while they will stand and answer and give an account for their own lives and what they do with the gospel, I will stand and give an account for what I did to invest in the foundation that their life sits on. And you will give an account, and we will give an account, and we need to be faithful. You can get back up to speed and lead again. And let's build families that honor the Lord. So as the band comes up, here's how we're going to close the service. I think the Kevins and Scott are going to be here down front maybe, and we'll have some pastors here. But let me challenge you this way. This evening, I think maybe... For, for some of you, specifically dads, I'll say from a dad to a dad, stepdads, maybe the first step that you need to move in leading your family in a biblical way would be to grab your wife, grab your kids. I don't make it awkward, but maybe the Lord would say, hey, let's go pray together. Altar will be open. We'll leave it open. Leave you alone. Just pray together as a family. And, and, and begin to peel yourself away from the distractions of life and set aside that sacred time of the day where you worship together and begin to lead the way Christ would have you to lead. And so the invitation is open in that way. The pastors will be here if you want somebody to pray with you, talk with you. Uh, certainly love to do that. And we, and, and, and we want to see families that reflect the Trinitarian existence and nature and glory of God. Let's be those families. God, I pray that you would bless um, your word, and that we would learn from, even from David's mighty men uh, in this situation, maybe the least likely of characters. But I pray that the connection we've made in our hearts and our minds, I pray that we would be obedient to your word as moms and dads and sons and daughters, and that the families that we are a part of would, in each situation, reflect your glory, that we would honor you. Love you and thank you for your word. Pray that we would love it, worship you, and under, it, under its authority. Because we know that you, it is possible to love Christ without loving his word. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And you, as the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray that we would love you and love your word, and our families would be sanctified by that. In Jesus' name.